You're listening to The Recovery, a series of conversations about rediscovering the ancient faith in order to reclaim our own. Hello, I hope this finds you well. It is Sunday evening as I record this, and I thought this week that I would share with you the teaching from this morning. It is the first week of Advent, and for us in our church, uh, this, this week's theme is hope. Uh, is represented by the prophet's candle, which we lit during our service. When I teach, I teach dialogically, which means I teach in conversation. I encourage um, the members of the congregation to ask questions or share their thoughts, uh, add to what I have to say, and thereby uh, strengthening the the congregation. Um, I'm certainly not the only one that comes with wisdom or insight, and so I encourage them to participate. Um, Because of that, though, um, not all of it is picked up on a mic. Sometimes the questions or comments are not, and that happened this morning. So there's at least one spot in here in which I cut out some dead space. The conversation kind of jumps or shifts topics as a result of that question. Um, and it was a question about uh, how we respond, as Isaiah is telling us to do. Like, how, what, what do we do? Uh, that'll make sense as, as you go through this conversation. Um, anyway, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, if you would like to join us online, you can find us Emanuel Downtown. Uh, we do stream live on Facebook at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. So please feel welcome to jump in with us. As we've mentioned already, today is the first week of Advent. And as we enter the season, it is the routine and the tradition that we light candles. And today's candle is the prophet's candle, also known as the hope candle. As we go through our series of Advent, our, our time of Advent this week or this month, um, we're going to be looking at Scripture uh, from what is known as the Common Lectionary, the Revised Common Lectionary. And this is a uh, plan or a series of Scripture that's on a three-year cycle, and probably the majority of the church uses a, very, a large number not a large percentage of the church. I don't want to say majority. I don't even know the numbers off the top of my head. But very many people use what is called the lectionary. So if you ever uh, looked at churches and you see this church happens to speak on this passage and this church over here speaks on the same one the same week, and it's kind of, if, as, you turn, as you look around today, if you pay attention, you're going to see a lot of people preaching out of Isaiah 2, a passage out of Matthew and Romans 13. Those are the readings out of the Revised Common Lectionary. Um, and so when we enter into a time of the church calendar, I like to use that lectionary because we join with the global church. We recognize that we are part of a much larger thing that God is doing. And so as we wait in this time of Advent, we will wait and we will study and we will wait in the same manner as, uh, as many, many other Christians across the globe. Um, so today we're going to be looking particularly at um, Isaiah, the Isaiah passage for today. We'll also pull in the Romans. The Matthew one, we're going to just leave because, of course, you know we're studying Matthew. And so we're going to get to that one and study that one in, in depth in due course. Um, but for today, we're going to talk about the uh, passage from Isaiah. And then again, as I said, Romans. So if you have a Bible, it's Isaiah chapter 2. We'll get to it in a minute. Before we do, I want to set the stage. Um, this is Isaiah chapter 2. And I, if you've heard me talk about Isaiah before, these things, I can't see everybody. <laughs> um, if you've heard about Isaiah, me talk about Isaiah, you know there are how many Isaiahs? 
at least two, right? There are probably three, right? And so you have one book known as Isaiah. Uh, the first is Isaiah of Jerusalem. He is the original Isaiah. And the second two were prophets that were probably his disciples that came after him. Isaiah spans hundred. the book spans hundreds of years from before till even after the return from the Babylonian exile. And it's, it's, we know, of course, that not one man lived that long. Um, and, and the way they speak and the things that they talk about are different and as they go through those phases of Israel's history. So if we're in chapter 2, which Isaiah are we part of? Would you guess? First. Yeah, I heard a soft finger, right? So we're in first Isaiah. So this is the Isaiah of Jerusalem, right? And he was teaching and, and, and prophesying from the period of 739 to 701 BC. So we're 700 years, seven centuries, uh, seven and a half centuries before Jesus shows up, Okay. What is going on during that time? Do you know? In the history of Israel? Lots of head shaking. Does anybody know? It's before the exile, right? So that's first Isaiah is before the Babylonian exile. But this is actually before even the Babylonian crisis. We're in the midst of what we know as the Assyrian crisis. So we are in a period known as the divided kingdom. And we've talked about this before. After Solomon was king, his, his son takes the throne, and his son, particularly Rehoboam is his name, he, uh, he, he takes advantage of the northern tribes. So Israel is divided into tribes, and the ones in the north, he sort of, he extorts more or less. He, he uses them essentially for slave labor, he taxes the heck out of them, um, and they revolt and they split off. And so it becomes the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And it's a little complicated um, but it's important to know as you read the prophets that Israel is the northern kingdom and Judah is the southern kingdom. So when we talk during this period about Israel, we're talking about the northern tribes. As we talk about Judah, we're talking about what we know as Jerusalem and the southern area. Okay? And so we are in this split kingdom period. Last week we talked a little about Hosea, who was a prophet. He and another one named Amos, they were prophets of the northern kingdom. So when we talked about uh, Hosea taking as a wife, a prostitute, as, a, as an image of, of what uh, the people of God had done, we're particularly, he's particularly talking about the northern kingdom at that point, the, the rebellion that the northern kingdom has made, that, that Israel has made, not necessarily Judah, although Judah's also rebelled during this time, right? And then, so Amos and Hosea are prophesying in the northern kingdom. Isaiah comes in the southern kingdom in Judah. And when it says, we get into it, you're going to see that his word is for, for Judah. So it's important for you to know that, to know who he's talking to, okay? For about 60, 70 years, these two kingdoms have been getting along, okay? There was a time initially of that uh, revolt and rebellion, that break off, the division. They did not get along. They fought against each other. The kings sort of hated each other. Uh, if you read, you, you find the southern prophets speak against the northern prophets. The, so, the northern prophets speak against the southern prophets. Uh, there's question as to who's really inheriting uh, the promise of, the true promise of Israel that God gave to Abraham. Since now we're split, what do we do? And this is part of the mess that Israel has made of itself, right? When God has called Abraham, he says, I'm going to make one nation, right? He creates 12 tribes. These 12 tribes make up one nation of Israel, and it's through that nation that the world will be made right or, or blessed, right? Um, but Israel makes a mess of it, and this is part of the mess that they make. They divide themselves, and what's going to happen is Assyria is going to conquer the northern kingdom, and they will become what is known as the lost tribes of Israel. They become assimilated in, their genetic lines are mixed with the Assyrians, um, and they essentially vanish to history. 
as a result of the Syrian conquest, right? And so what, what is God going to do? He had 12 tribes. What does God do? Jesus calls 12 disciples, right? And that's important, right? I and mean, we've talked about in the Matthew. Jesus is calling 12 disciples to reconstitute the 12 tribes of Israel, essentially, right? It, it, metaphorically and symbolically, he's reconstituting Israel because Israel broke itself, right? So we are not yet at the period where uh, the northern kingdom has been conquered. And what happens is Assyria is, is just sort of up there, but it starts to grow in strength. And the writings on the wall, they're becoming more, pow- more powerful. They're starting to conquer their neighbors. And all of Israel and Judah can see what's going to come, right? And they get a little upset <laughs> and scared about what's happening, right? And the, the Judah, the, the southern king, right? He goes to uh, Assyria and he says, we, we're on your side, right? Because they can see what's coming. So you've got Judah, you've got uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, and then Assyria's north of them. So th- as they come south, they're going to conquer the northern kingdom. Everybody can sort of see that coming. In an attempt to keep them from marching further south, the southern kingdom, Judah, goes to, the, the king at the time of Assyria is Tiglath-Pileser. You may have seen, you'll see his name if you read the text. Uh, you may have heard his name in Bible school or something like that, Sunday school. Uh, it's a fun name to say, Tiglath-Pileser, right? Um, but he is the king of Assyria, and Ahaz, the king of Judah, goes to him and says, hey, we're, we're, we're pro-Assyrian. We're on your side. Uh, and, and so we, we want you not to, to take us. Go ahead and take the northern kingdom. We don't really like them anyway. Um, we get along with them. We've been getting along with them for about 50 years, but you do what you want to with them. Just don't take us, right? What do you think the northern kingdom feels about that? They're not happy, right? And so they go to war against the southern kingdom. They retaliate, right? And, this, and if you know how the, the numbers break out, there are like nine or ten tribes in the north. One, one tribe gets sort of split between the two of them, but there are essentially ten tribes in the north and two in the south. So there are way more, way more people. And we've talked before about the Galilee and the fact that Jesus comes from Galilee is somewhat uh, suspect because that's a northern kingdom area, right? And they're richer, they're smarter, uh, they're, they're more developed because they have more resources up there than the south. And, so, and there are 10 tribes up there. So this m- more well-equipped, with better resources, larger kingdom comes south to, to fight against the two tribes in the south who are poorer, who, who don't have the resources that they have. What, what do you think they do? What does Ahaz in the south do? What? Well, they, they, they lost. He says, he says they lost. They're going to lose, right? So if you're Ahaz, if you're the king of the southern kingdom, what do you do? You're going to lose. You know you're going to lose. Right? What do you think he does? Yeah. Who's he think he, who do you think he forms an alliance with? Sorry? Assyria. He goes to Tiglath-Pileser and he says, help us. Right? And, and Assyria is more than happy to do that. They're more than happy to come in with certain conditions. Right? And so they start to tax and they take a tribute Right? And, and there, there are all these conditions upon which they come in to Ahaz's and, and Judah's aid. Right? And so we are now in the midst of a northern-southern battle in which the southern kingdom has sort of aligned itself with, the, with Assyria, the, the, the pagan, the Gentile kingdoms of the world, which will conquer and destroy the majority of Israel as we know it. How do you think God feels about this situation? He can't be pleased, right? He's not, right? But this is the context into which Isaiah waltzes, 
right? Into this tension between north and south, this division amongst Israel, the, the family of God is broken, it's split itself apart. They're now at war. The Judah, the southern kingdom has aligned itself with Assyria rather than against its brothers and sisters, right? This is not at all what God has planned or hoped. And so Isaiah walks into the midst of this and in the second chapter says this. He says, the word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah, right? So that's the southern kingdom, right? That's why we went through all of that at the beginning, and Jerusalem. It says, in days to come, the mountains of the, the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. All right, so hopefully that context gives some shape and some understanding to what Isaiah is talking about, right? We understand that there's war going on. There's animosity between tribes. There's an alignment with uh, the powers of the world. And Isaiah's point is essentially that we need to rely on God, right? The introduction that uh, Mike gave us in our prayer that we need to trust God in times of trial and tribulation. And when all else seems lost, God will be there for us. That's the message that Isaiah is giving to his people. That is the hope that we celebrate in this week of Advent. So let's walk through this real quick, right? Um, so we know, of course, as we said, that Isaiah is coming to Judah, to the southern kingdom, right? And he says, in days to come, this, a more literal translation of this phrase would be, in the afterward of these days. And... That's sort of important because the way that Israel looks at itself. Does anybody know how Israel defines itself? Sorry, the chosen, right? And, and when were they chosen? With Abraham, right? The, in the past, right? So for Israel, if you think about the, the, um, the festivals that they have, right? So it's the, the festival of booths, the Passover, um, uh, their, their traditions, they're all historically based, right? So Israel was defined by what God has done in their past. And so there was a way of looking at themselves in which they were turned backwards looking at what has happened in the past and they backed into the future. Does that make sense? Right? Because they're constantly looking back at what God has done. So, and, and what, what Isaiah is saying, like, while we're turned backwards, there's going to be a time when we're going to be able to sort of turn the other way. So, in the, in the days after these, so after these days are the days that have defined us, our history, okay? Um, and so, it's in those days, Israel will what? What is the mountain of the Lord's house? What's the, what's the Lord's house? The temple. Where is the temple? The Temple Mount, right? Where, I, I, I heard it over here. In Jerusalem, right? There, Jerusalem sits on a mountain. Right? And it was held across all peoples, pretty much, uh, Jews and non-Jews alike, that God's lived in the mountains. Okay? And so Israel's God lived on Mount Zion. It's the mountain that Jerusalem's built on. Right? That's, that's, if you, so when you hear about Mount Zion, we're talking about Jerusalem. 
right? The city of David, the hill of the temple, right? And so in these days that are coming, so as, as we get into sort of the next phase, right? And we're not here necessarily talking about the, the millennial or apocalyptic. We're not there yet, right? We haven't talked about uh, Ezekiel and Daniel and, and, and those concepts aren't necessarily in the, the psyche of Israel at this point. But there's a day coming in the future that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains, right? What, what does that mean? Is it just going to grow? No, it's a metaphor, right? right? That the nations, all of the nations will recognize that it is the God that resides on this mountain, which is the highest, which the most important, the most elevated, right? It will be recognized that the religion of Israel is the religion, Okay, so there's coming a day when God will reveal himself to the whole world, right? This is the promise, right? This is ultimately what Israel, even in the first century, when we are talking about Christmas and the coming of Jesus and Jesus' life, this is their expectation, based in part on Isaiah's words here. There will come a day when the God that resides in the temple on Mount Zion will be seen by all the nations as the highest of all gods, right? Into verse 3. Many peoples, what are peoples? Nations, tribes, right? And we think nations, we think of nation states, right? So we've talked about Ukraine, the United States, and Germany. The world did not look like that at this point, right? There were uh, people groups, and they resided in places. There were not strict boundaries necessarily. Things were fluid, right? And so when we talk about nations, the nation state is a modern invention, Right? We're talking, when the Bible says nations, it's talking about people groups. Okay? So all people groups, many people groups, shall come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, which is where? Jerusalem, right? To the house of God of Jacob, that he may teach us in his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Right? So that he's going to teach. Right? So we're going to go, the nations, we'll go so that God does what? Teaches. And what does God teach? Sorry? Yeah, so that we may live, right? The going is so that we may be taught. The teaching is so that we may live, right? And what Isaiah is talking about is this time when the whole world will recognize that we go to seek the counsel of the Lord, right? We, we, must, we must go to the Lord. He will teach us. We must go to God. He must, will teach us how to live, right? And that we must then walk, we must do what he says, right? So that learning is for the purpose of living. And then he gets into verse 4, and he's talking here about what he's talked about in the first chapter, which we're not going to get into today, but he's talking about the causes for conflict, right? He's been talking in the first chapter about the reason for the conflicts that we experience, and particularly, think about the conflict that is going on in this time, right? There is the northern versus southern kingdom. We've got the Syrian crisis on, on the looming. We know eventually they're going to conquer the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom will survive, but eventually Babylon's going to come and conquer the southern kingdom, right? The cause of all of this war and this trouble is uh, self-absorbedness, self-sufficiency. This idea that as a nation, as a people, we are responsible for ourselves, right? That we must secure ourselves, that we must provide for ourselves, right? And if, and if a nation sees itself as responsible for its security and its prosperity, what's the result? 
What happens? Yeah. If I have something that, or if I want something and I feel like I need something and you have it, if I'm a nation that desperately needs oil and you have it, what am I going to do? I'm going to take it. Right? If I feel like you are going to come to war against me, if I'm Judah and I feel like the northern kingdom's coming to me, and I feel like I'm responsible for my salvation and my protection, what am I going to do? Figure out how I defend myself. And what do they do? They turn to Assyria and they form an alliance, which will break them, right? Which will tax them, which will cause them all sorts of problems. They ultimately will not be conquered by Assyria, but ultimately Babylon, right? But the agreements that are required of them in order to get that protection from Assyria are substantial and they're crippling. The cause for the, the, the plights, the, the war, the, the situation that Israel finds itself in, even the division. Remember that Solomon's son, Rehoboam, right? He needs and he wants. So what does he do? He extorts from the northern kingdom. He takes advantage of them because he feels like he has to figure out how to provide for himself, how to build this empire that has been left to him. David, then Solomon, then Rehoboam. Like, how do you, how do you fill those shoes, David and Solomon, Right? Well, he filled them not so well. And he caused the breakup of the kingdom, right? Because he felt like he was responsible for the prosperity of the nation of Israel, right? When, when we see that we are in charge, when we see the world as something that we must do, the, the protection is something that we must render, right? The provision is something that we must go out and make or take for ourselves, Violence is almost always the result. Right? This, is, this is part of Isaiah's larger point in, in his prophecies, but it's particularly here. Right? When we see ourselves as responsible, right? when Ahaz, the king, says, I've got to do something because Israel's coming south. I've got to do something. He ends up making an alliance with a terrible kingdom. Right? Isaiah's point is not that Judah, remember that's who he's talking to, the southern kingdom, King Ahaz, right? The, 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 that, that people. His point is not that you should be pro-Assyrian or anti-Assyrian, right? But rather you should be pro-God. It's not a matter of alliances and seeing other nations as for or against you, right? It is a matter of, are we going to rely upon God? Do we understand that our salvation, our security, our prosperity is a gift from God? And so rather than turning to Tiglath-Pileser, right, when the northern kingdom comes south, who, who ought they be turning to? Yeah, the easy, easy answer, right? God. But they don't, right? They are, they are so blind and so lost, and they've forgotten, right? If they truly had been looking backwards, they would remember that God has time and time again provided for them. Remember, God is the God at Passover, they remember, who brought them out of Egypt, right? Through the Red Sea. At, at, you know, he parted the waters so that they could come through. He brought plagues upon Egypt so that uh, Egypt would know his power. This is their God. This is, this is a defining moment for them, right? They ought to remember that God will bring them out of whatever persecution that they find themselves in, that he will provide a way for them. When they wandered the desert and the wilderness, he provided meals for them. He provided homes for them. He provided guidance in the form of himself in the sky, right? Pillar of fire at night, a cloud during the day, right? 
Time and time again, God provides for this nation, yet they've forgotten that. Right? They have failed to live into the covenant that God set before them. They're looking elsewhere for their own safety and security and provision. And it is that for which God is upset. It is that which is, that Isaiah comes and berates them for, right? And reminds them that we must look towards God, right? And at the end here, he says, O house of Jacob, Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord, right? That goes back to let us walk, right? We go so that he may teach us, so that we may walk. And that is his call for Judah particularly, but all of Israel to come back to God. Let us rest in the, in the hope and the security that God provides. And when we do that, we have no need for war. If we trust that God is going to provide for us, we don't have to go to war against another nation to take it. Because we trust that whatever need we have will be met by God. Right? And it is because... We trust God. We no longer have to do things for ourselves. We no longer need to go to war. That we no longer need the tools of war. And so when he talks here about uh, beating their swords into plowshares, right, and their spears into pruning hooks, we don't need those tools anymore. We don't need our spears. We don't need our swords. And so we can take those things, we can smash them, and then we can use them for better purposes, for tilling the ground, for providing for ourselves in that way, the way that God has designed for us, right? And what Isaiah is calling the people back to is a proper relationship with God, which then allows a proper relationship with the world around them, right? At the root, what they've messed up is their relationship with God. And because of that, right, that is the core sickness. Because of that, the symptom is that they've messed up their relationship with all those around them. And here we are yet once again at the two commandments. What are they? Love God, love people. Right? And here, Isaiah is saying to Israel, you have screwed up, right? You are messing up the second because you messed up the first. And we need to get back to right relationship with God, and that will then facilitate and enable us to get back to right relationship with our people, right? What, what, did, what did, Mike, what did you say? What was the quote from N.T. Wright? How do we overcome evil in the world? Do good and pray. Right? That, that we, we trust. Part of what Isaiah is calling them to and why this passage gets used this week in Advent, as uh, we talked about the candle being the prophet's candle, but the theme is also a hope. Right? It's, so I, for, for Israel, they have been looking backwards through their entire history, which gives them shape, which gives, which gives them identity, which helps them remember who God is. Right? But when we talk about hope, hope is for what? Hope is a future-facing thing. And what Isaiah is talking about here is we can't simply look backwards, right? We must also look forward, and there will come a day. And, and it doesn't, you have to remember that God's time is long, right? And so when we talk about what are we going to do, right? In, that, in the instance of Hezekiah, he goes and he, he, he prays to God and he, he puts it in God's hands and he wakes up the next day and the, ar- the enemy's army is devastated and the, the king, enemy king leaves, right? God acted in that moment overnight, but that doesn't always happen, right? It may be, and there are other times in Israel's history where they pray, right? I mean, think about the, the captivity in, in Egypt. Hundreds of years, they cried out to God, Right? Generation after generation after generation continued in slavery, continued being abused, right? God's purpose is not necessarily for you individually. 
God's purpose is for the world. And so when Isaiah is talking to uh, Judah, and they say, he says to King Ahaz and, and the, the kings of Judah that would come after him that are making these plea, you know, bargains with, with Israel. It, it's, not, it's not a matter of if you return to God, tomorrow everything's going to be made, made right. It might be. God has done that. But if we as a people, right, it, it, it's very much about the people through time, not necessarily the individual of Ahaz or the individual or, or you. That's a tough pill for us to swallow, swallow right? It's not necessarily about you. It's about what God is doing over time for, the, for humanity. And what Isaiah is pointing Israel to is, that, is a hope for the future. There will come a day when God will make everything right. right? And I told you before, when is Isaiah prophesying? The 8th century BC, right? 750-ish, 730-ish, up through about 700 BC is, is first Isaiah, Right? we know what the history of Israel is, right? There are kings who come back to them, and so they, they but there are others that mess it up, right? What, it's not as if one of those kings comes back to God and everything's right and God fixes it, right? It's 700 years until Jesus, the Messiah. That was how long ago? 2,000 years ago, right? And so the church now is looking for, this is kind of going to where we're, the Romans passage is going in a minute here. Now we look, we're looking forward even still, right? Generation after generation after generation of the church has prayed, has tried to be faithful, has failed, has come back to God, right? We, we, are, we repeat that cycle, waiting for the time when God is going to restore all things, right? And so in the same way as the the BC Israel was looking towards Messiah, we are looking for Messiah's return. And just because we are faithful doesn't mean necessarily that everything's going to wake up, we're going to wake up tomorrow and everything's going to be fixed. It doesn't work globally, universally. It hasn't worked out that way. It never worked out that way in the Old Testament, right? It is God working through his people over time to redeem the world. We got to get out of this idea that it's just about us right? It's not as if you're going to get right with God and tomorrow everything's going to be right. That's the prosperity gospel and it is a heresy, right? You're not going to pray to God today and he's going to give you a million dollars tomorrow. You're not winning the lottery, right? And if you do, it has very little to do with God, I would argue, right? Good for you, lucky. Uh, and as Chris said, that would be nice, right? right? But it's not going to probably happen, right? And we need to, one of the things that Israel, or Israel did well when they got it right and what Isaiah is doing and reminding them is that we have to have this long-term horizon. There will come a time in the future. The hope week of Advent is all about recognizing what is coming, right? Skip, if we skip over to the Romans passage, right? This is Paul in the 13th chapter of Romans. He's wrapping, beginning to wrap up his letter, right? And he has this, in my, my text, that the heading is an urgent appeal, right? Those were added, but that just gives you an idea. He says, besides this, everything he said, he says, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep, for, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day, not reveling, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and lasciviousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Right? Same message as what Isaiah said 750 years before Paul, 800 years before Paul. Right? 
It's the same message to the church, right? So as we think about what was Isaiah trying to say to Israel, Paul picks up that message and says it to the church. He says, the time is coming, right? Isaiah said, there will come a time in the future. Paul is very clear there is coming a time. And Paul and the early church, they think it's coming quickly. They do. They write as if the return of Jesus is going to be tomorrow, right? At, at any moment, right? Again, they get, they get captured in this human perspective, not realizing that we're talking about God and God's time. And it, God has a long-term vision and great patience, right? For us, it seems like forever. For him, it's, what do you mean? I just did the other one the other day, right? <laughs> Adam and Eve was just yesterday for him. So, for, you know, we, we, we get too caught in our own perspective too often, right? What should we be doing? Well, what does Isaiah say in that fifth verse? Let us walk in the light of the Lord. What does Paul say, right? Come back to the light. Don't live in the darkness, right? Live in the way of Jesus, right? It is by returning to God, it is by living in relationship with God that the church and Israel before it was to be the light on the hill. Think back to Matthew, right? You are the salt of the earth, right? You are a lamp. No one puts a lamp under a, a bushel or a basket, depending on your translation, right? You are to be a light to the world. You are to live in right relationship with the, with the Lord, with God, with Christ, or the church. And it is that right relationship, living and walking in that way, that God has instructed, filled with the Holy Spirit, that becomes the light of the world. And when we do that, when we do that, we no longer have a need for self-protection. We no longer re rely on ourselves, right? We no longer are seeking to gratify our fleshly desires. We're relying on God to do that for us, right? We have a new godly, heavenly kingdom perspective, right? Which allows for peace, which allows for us not to bring violence upon those who are opposed to us or who have the things that we need because we trust in God. And when we live that way, it says to the world, God is different. The people of God are different. Come join us, right? And when the early church got that right, when they heeded Paul's example, when they heeded Matthew's teaching, when they heeded John's teaching, when they listened to the words of Jesus... What happened? What's the story of the early church? Explosion. Right? It exploded. For reasons we've talked about before. Right? They cared for the sick. When plagues came, they literally walked through the street and all of the old sickly people that the families had thrown out. Like, you threw the bodies out into the, the street when they got sick so that it was, the sickness was out of your house. So that you didn't, your whole family didn't come down with it. The Christians walked through the street, picked those people up, and took them home and cared for them. Right? And to your point, Kathy, what happened to a lot of those Christians? Sorry? They died. Right? It's not as if you walk in the way of the Lord and everything's hunky-dory and what we would want to happen. Right? They didn't wake up the next day and have a, a fully healthy person living in their room. Right? But what happened is the early church did the thing that God called them to do and the nations flocked to them. They saw that things were different with these people. Right? This wasn't a people who was looking out for their own good. It was a people who were willing to sacrifice to help. 
to literally, in, in times and places, lay their lives on the line for the betterment of other people. They had this long vision. They listened to Paul. They had the hope that Paul talks about, that Isaiah talked about, that we think about in this week of Advent. We, as the church, look forward to the day when all will be made right. And the question that you have before you today is, what do you hope for? That the aches and the pains go away? <laughs> that would be good, right? That would be helpful, right? Right? That the cancer is alleviated? Oh, yeah, Dakota says all the good and, and the truth that John the Baptist spoke and he was beheaded, right? But that's the story time and time again with the early church and the martyr. You know, we have Justin Martyr. His, his, martyr's not his last name. He was a martyr. He was killed, right? This is, this is the reality of it. But why? There are, we have stories and accounts of early church. Uh, we've talked about them in the past. Um, uh, name starts with a P and I can't. It'll come to me later, but um, there's a story of this woman who was a leader in the church and three or four of her disciples who had been outed, who were going to be killed. They were fed to cougars and bears and, and they were rejoicing in their cells, right? Many of the early church looked forward to their death. They looked forward to the opportunity to prove to the world that they believed what they said they believed. Why? That's not, that's, that's insane, Right? Except it's not. That is the hope that we must live our life with. They, they knew that on the other side of death was restoration. They looked to Jesus and they saw Jesus born, Jesus lived, Jesus crucified, Jesus coming through death, out the other side, into a newly created type of man. We asked the other question, what, other question a few weeks ago, what type of man is Jesus? Right? Well, he's one type of man first, and then he's Apparently, a different type of man when he's resurrected, right? He's a, he's a resurrection man. And they looked at that and they said, that, that's our hope. Resurrection, restoration, wholeness, health, right? And so as I ask, what do you hope for? Many of us hope for reunion with lost ones, grandparents, spouses, kids that have moved on before us. That's a great thing. I'm looking forward to that too right? We look forward to health, restored bodies. That's a great thing. We've talked before about Israel looking forward to the coming Messiah. And what were they looking forward to? The hope that they interpreted from Isaiah was a conquering king that would restore their place in the world, right? And what we must realize is that what we hope for, whatever it is that you're hanging on to, can't hold a candle to what God will actually do, right? We've talked a couple weeks on the heels of one of Kathy's questions, right? Why didn't they understand it would be God with them? That's not what they hoped for. That wasn't the grid. That wasn't the expectation. They were just, they were just hoping for a, a reunified, redefined Israel, right? That sat on the hill and sort of was the nation, was the beacon to the world, right? They never realized that it might actually be God coming. They never realized that they were going to see a resurrection, right? They weren't expecting that. What God does is way beyond what they had hoped for. And we must realize that what we hope for in the second coming and the restoration is only a pale example of what will probably be coming. 
that what God will do as he restores all things, what that means is far beyond your wildest dreams. You will have no need. You will have no pain. You will have no suffering. We will have no animosity among one another. The lion will lay down with the lamb is the way it is given to us. Right? There will be peace. Right? Not only will you not have physical suffering or emotional suffering, uh, any, any you know, mental suffering, whether it's mental illness, whether it's you've been wronged and now you live your life in, in some paranoid state where you think people are out to get you, all of that will evaporate. And you will be made, we will be made whole. But even there, there's a a tendency to talk as individuals, right? To think about, oh, it's the hope for what's going to happen to me, right? Yeah, it's going to happen to you, but it's going to happen to everything. Not just everything, everyone, right? And when you latch on to that hope, when you latch on to that understanding, when you begin even to taste what it looks like, what it might be, like the early church, If I wake up tomorrow and I'm dead, great. Right? What does Paul say? To live is gain. To die is Christ. Right? Good for me if I'm alive tomorrow. Good for better for me if I'm dead tomorrow. Right? Not because we revel in death, but we're looking forward to what's on the other side. We have great, immense hope. We ought to. It's what Isaiah says. It's what Paul says. It's what the entire New Testament says. It's It's the gospel. Jesus is king. All will be made right. All is being made right. And because it will be made right, we are free in this day and age, in this in between state, to throw caution into the wind, to know that God's got our back, come what may. What's the worst that could happen? What's the worst? What was it, Ian? You die. So what? Great. Great. We're there. Right? That's what hope is. Our eyes are there. And until we get there, we have work to do. And because we're going there, if we know that all falls apart here, and we pay the ultimate price, it's like... uh, Straight to jail, only straight to heaven. Do not pass go, just go there. Boom, ticket punched. I hate that metaphor, but right? <laughs> but you're going, right? And I don't know what there is today. I don't know, I don't know where my dad is. I don't know where your family is, right? It, it describes it as paradise, awaiting the time when all will be made well and the world will be remade, right? So there's an ultimate remaking, but in the interim, if we die, we are with Christ. To live is gain because we look to that place We look with that hope of knowing that all will be made well and we get to not care about the pain and the sorrow of this world. That sounds a little uh, insensitive because pain and sorrow is real. In the coming week, we'll talk about joy. But that hope gives us joy in the midst of sorrow. If you remember the week after my dad passed last year, I got up here and I, I said to everyone, we're all going there. Good. Right? If we're doing that for eternity, why are we wasting our time here now? 
Why are we worried about our own security? Why are we worried about our own provision? Why? Okay, so you go hungry for a week. So you starve to death. Boom, you're there. Great. Why does the early church undergo such persecution? Right? Why is the church in Ukraine right now going under, able to undergo such persecution? Why is the church in China for hundreds of years now been, been able to undergo such persecution? Why is the church, the Coptic church in Ethiopia or uh, the churches in Assyria or Syria now? Sorry. Right? They're being slaughtered. Why do they hold to their faith? Because of the hope of the resurrection. If, if there's nothing else that we do as a church, may we get this perspective into our skulls. The game is not what we think we're playing. The game you are likely playing, the game that I play most days, is not the game that God is playing. Just pause there. The things you are worried about are not the things that God is worried about most often. Let us go to Mount Zion. Right? God will teach you, but you must go. The nations must go to the mountain to be taught. So let us go. Let us learn. And then let us live. Today, may you understand the true hope that we have because of who God is, because of who Jesus is, because of the spirit that fills us, because we have a king. As we look to this Christmas day, as we wait, we recognize as the church, we are rehearsing as we look back the waiting of Israel for the coming Messiah. But we as a church are also waiting for the return of that very same Messiah. Because we know it's coming. And the restoration that will happen will be wilder than any of our imaginations. And that reality, that truth, that perspective ought to change how we think about everything. If it doesn't strike you to the core and put you off your mark and change the way you think about things, you don't understand it. May we live as a church through this Advent season and all of our days with the hope of Isaiah, with the hope of Paul, with the hope of the restoration, which makes us a new people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Christmas season. We thank you for this time that we take to reflect on the history that preceded it, the waiting that Israel did. And this week, the hope that prophets like Isaiah and Amos and Hosea would bring, though it was a stinging indictment of the way they were living their life, it was a call back to a righteous relationship between them and you. And as we reflect on that today, as we think about the many ways in which we rely on ourselves for our provision, for our security, for our, um, for our daily living, Lord, we ask that you would help enlighten us, help open our eyes to the true hope, the true concerns that we must have in light of who you are and what you have done. Let us live every day knowing that all is being made and will ultimately be made well.
Where, O death, is your sting? For us, for those of us who call on Jesus, it has none. Our worst fears have been eliminated. Allow us to go forth from this day and to live as if that were true, because it is. Give us the hope of the Christmas season. Give us the hope and the joy and the peace and the love that is brought by your Son on Christmas morning and extends to us because of Easter. We ask all this today in your name, in your Son's name, and in the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, if you stuck with all that, good for you. I appreciate that. I hope that you take something from that, especially as we enter into our Advent season this year and march towards Christmas. As always, if you aren't subscribed, please do. If you get something out of it, uh, if you are enjoying it, please share it with a friend. We'll see you next time.